D&D has attempted to emulate genre with various settings in the past. One example of this was the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Lankma City of Adventure supplement, which attempted to downplay the effectiveness of D&D-style magic for player characters to emulate the more barbarian, fighter-thief-focused aspects of the setting. Wow, that is a, that is a mouthful. All of the spells in the game had their casting time bumped up to the next tier, so rounds became turns, that means ten rounds was one turn, that's how long it took to cast, and hours became days. That all seemed like a lot of work compared to just giving the Grey Mouse the Magic Initiate feat. Also, maybe read Agile and Next, it's a more modern version of the story. And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of other RPGs, D&D is the cool side of the pillow stuffed with D20s. Ow, that does not sound very comfortable <laughs> at all. Hi, I'm Ange. I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnomecast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. In 2021, I also became head gnome. And I'm Jared. I'm the review gnome at Gnome Stew, and I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. After we look at the games we're running in our campaign journals, we are going to check in with our playtesting in Magical Tinkering, and we'll be talking about fantasy genres in Dungeons & Dragons in our Dungeon Masters workshop. And then, of course, at the end, we're going to have some recommendations for D&D-related things for you to check out in our downtime research segment. But on to the campaign journal. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. So, in the depths of Zendrick, we left off with the party having taken a short rest after their fight with the Warforged Titan, and then the fight with the Living Spells. Between the fight with the Black Dragon overnight, and then this, they were they were a little like, okay, we need to heal up and take a moment to rest and recharge some of the things that recharge <laughs> on a short rest. When they did head inside, they left Fiannon, uh, the Valinar horse that had bonded with Vandrith, outside to keep watch. Because we realized quite recently that, oh, once you bond with the Valinar, you have telepathy with them up to a pretty long <laughs> distance like oh so he can actually communicate with the horse that is smarter than him <laughs> once they headed down the stairs they found a weird circular dome thing in the center of the room that had strange runes on it and four small bowls in kind of the cardinal directions this was a bit of a puzzle slash riddle slash skill challenge they had to make intelligent skill checks of some kind to interpret the runes, because they were not something they were readily familiar with. They had to piece together with all the knowledge, and that was my gauge on how long it was going to take them to work together to decipher the runes. Once they deciphered them, and they actually rolled really well on those checks, so once I deciphered them, they were basically riddles pointing to the four basic elements in most magic-type <laughs> systems, earth, air, water, fire... And my players, of course, immediately started making Fifth Element jokes. I get it, because I was about to start making Fifth Element jokes, too. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they kept asking me, you're sure there's not a, a fifth little <laughs> cylinder in the middle? And of course, being my players, they had to argue about how to represent each element. <laughs> and like, we're getting super complicated and very concerned that, that nobody had a spell that could create Earth without getting into a high-level spell. And... TJ was just like, TJ is Cargill, the goblins player, and he's like, how about you just pick up a handful of dirt and drop it in? You know, it's like sometimes they really go overly complicated with these things. As they got, they, that is, this of course opened the door, which was really cool because I had it set up where the map showed one thing and then as soon as they opened it, I could drop the stairwell on top of it so it looked like it revealed the stairwell to them. As they headed down the stairs, I had them all make some sort of mental saving throw. Now, I know a lot of games tend to tell you to, you know, it's a wisdom save or an intelligence save or a charisma save. And I'm like, eh, this is more just like, what is their strongest mental thing? And like, what are they saving against there to resist this mm -hmm. influence? Vandrith and Manic both failed, so they started getting kind of whispers in their mind calling to them as they headed further <laughs> down into the stairs. At the bottom of the stairs, they found an underground cavern that had obviously been a laboratory of some sort. I had 
a lot of fun describing the bones of giants mingled with the bones of smaller folk and other creatures. An operating table sized for a giant <laughs> with some sort of magic on it that preserved whatever was on it so they could see fresh blood from 10,000 years ago still on it. Then there were things in jars and just an eerie glow from further into the caverns down hallways. They were very careful and very quiet through here even as they kind of investigated stuff. They went further in, and there was mushrooms kind of lining the entryway to the further chamber that were kind of an alarm system that they very carefully avoided. And in the further chamber, they found an enraged fire giant along with a couple of fire elementals. The enraged fire giant had basically gotten himself trapped there uh, and was trying to tap into the power that was here that he wasn't finding a way to get access to for reasons. And the fire elementals were there just to make the encounter a challenge to my players because, <laughs> you know, reasons. Monsters travel in packs when you want them to travel in packs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if it had just been the giant, it would have been an easy cake. You know, the, the, the fight would have been as easy as cake because mm -hmm. I have good players. They're tactically sound. They do things the right way. And having a distraction from just the giant was pretty useful. Um, it actually kept Rena out of that fight quite a bit because she ended up sort of getting chased by one of the fire elementals. I mean, she kept that fire elemental busy. They kept the other fire elemental busy by forcing it to go into the center of the room over this floor circle of power that was engraved and glowing. And once it touched that circle, it kind of got trapped in a thing of force. The fight with the giant was tough. He nearly took out Sax and Vandreth with um, one of his attacks. Sax was able to back off. And even though he only had a couple of hit points left for most of that fight, he was able to keep other people up and help do things. Vandreth was in his element doing his paladin thing of like, no, no, you fight with me. <laughs> Once the fight with the giant was done, I had them all make more mental saves. While Manic saved this time, Vandreth did not. So the voice was calling louder to Vandreth and kind of leading him into this little alcove where he realized there was a secret door. Of course, this is all you know, nefarious planning of whatever is down there. <laughs> they end up heading down into this secret passageway and finding a hidden chamber that was kind of like Larock's inner sanctum. Uh, at the far end of the room, they could see sitting on a throne, they could see a giant skeleton just sitting there. And in the center of the room was another domed force cage that had a quarry in it. Now, the quarry are, they're like the otherworldly horrors in Eberron, <laughs> uh, and the giants supposedly fought them millennia upon millennia ago, and they're psychic creatures, they're very manipulative, and it was kind of asking them politely to set it free, and of course everyone's like, oh, hell no, <laughs> we're not gonna do that. But of course, Vandreth had failed his saving throw. <laughs> so as they were all carefully investigating around the room and, you know, seeing some of the treasure chests that might have cool stuff in them and that the giant skeleton had an amulet around his neck, the quarry basically promised Vandreth that it would give him a great reward if it would come to him. Vandreth, being our himbo of the group, <laughs> kind of went up and he's like, okay, I will help you. And him approaching and crossing the threshold of the circle broke the cage, which let it free. And it rewarded Vandreth by cursing him with this thing the quarry could do where he will basically get levels of exhaustion every day until he dies. And upon his death, the quarry can take over his body. <laughs> Absolutely horrifying. Now, this encounter was admittedly set up to be way more than the players could handle. The quarry was a CR-19 creature, because this was the, the big bad mm -hmm. of the quarry. And it was fully meant to be an unwinnable fight. And I don't like doing this to my players very often, but I think it can be a good way to establish that there are things still in the world 
to be afraid of, even when you are badass six-level players. Mm-hmm. They actually surprised me with how much damage they were able to do to the quarry before it did one of its AoEs and took out four <laughs> of the six members of the party in one go. I, I had a lot of fun role-playing this and the way, because it doesn't talk, it mentally, telepathically communicates with you. And, you know, I was describing it in like, it's a bad touch to your mind as it just laughs at you and you feel like it touching your brain. And My brain feels greasy. Yeah, yeah. And I had it basically laugh at them and tease them as it basically left and went off into the world. And that made the creepy feeling of the whole complex fade. Luckily, one of the players that was still on their feet was the cleric, Sax. So he kind of quickly came over and started getting people back up and... They ended up ending the session, deciding that they wanted to, you know, they looked around the inner chamber there and found some things, but decided they wanted to go upstairs and take a long rest and then come back with Speak With Dead to ask Skeleton some questions. And I believe the last words of the night were Renna saying, I don't want to rest in the ritual chamber. Yeah, actually, that's that's probably not a bad general bit of adventuring <laughs> advice there. <laughs> um, what's funny is I I really wish there were giants that had legendary actions. That is such a weird thing to me that giants in D&D, according to the core rules, are basically a big sack of hit points that do a lot of damage, <laughs> but they don't do gianty type tricks. Like, for example, I would think a giant can swing and hit more than one person in their yeah. reach because that feels like a giant thing to do. It should be an AoE attack that's basically them swinging their weapon. Yeah. Um, Shadow of the Demon Lord has a thing where, like, if you knock a giant out, you have to basically, you know, save or take damage from it falling. Like, <laughs> these are things that I kind of wish giants did. However, our next book that is coming out for D&D is the giant-focused book that is the giant version of the Fizzband's Treasury of Dragons that we got uh. last year. So I am really interested to see if maybe we get a few legendary giant stat blocks or some giant stat blocks that have a few more mechanically interesting things other than they can take a ton of hit points and do a ton of hit points and, <laughs> and leave it at that. Yeah, yeah, that would be interesting and very helpful considering I'm expecting to run for one more session mm -hmm. and then put the campaign on hiatus for a while. You know, we'll basically finish this chapter, so to speak, and take a break and play Tristan's game for a while mm -hmm. and then come back to it at a later point. And I do fully intend to come back to it because I'm enjoying this game in this, this world and these characters. <laughs> <sighs> I probably should have set this up to do this at the end of February because... March and April are kind of nuts at work, uh -huh. but there you go. So I actually had two different things that I could detail. I'm going to talk about my Thursday night game, but at some point I'm hoping Ange and I can talk about the other game that I ran in between <laughs> the last, uh, the last episode and this one, because that's where I had a bunch of new players and hopefully maybe we can throw together an episode about running for newer players. Running for newbies. But in the meantime... Our, our more established crew of people from uh, Thursday nights, they started off in Valhalla, they died, they came back, they feasted, they have gifts, they have Heroes Feast going for 24 hours. Everybody kind of wanted to see if they could spend their treasure on magic items if possible, and they remember that while they are traveling across the plains, there's a whole plane of commerce in the Midgard cosmology, the infinite markets of Klangadesh. Well, we very specifically, during the fight in Valhalla, uh, Mazram couldn't hit anything. Yes. <laughs> and in part, he didn't have a magic weapon. It's like, okay, we need to fix that. You need a magic weapon. We're at the point where a lot of the things we're facing, you need magic to hurt them. I think that was exacerbated in that fight because whenever the Berserker, you know, uh, layer action hit, he couldn't cast spells. Well, there was also another exacerbating fact that Mazroom was using a weapon that he technically couldn't <laughs> use. <laughs> yes. Which he didn't discover until we were actually shopping. That is true. <laughs> so the group used their path token, and all those mechanics come from the Path of the Plane Breaker book. And they're traveling down the path and effectively walking on this path between different planes of existence. I rolled for a random encounter from that book, and they ended up fighting Refuse Revenants. <laughs> I framed this as 
this was garbage that fell off. Of, I didn't expressly say this in the session, but it was basically garbage that fell off of spell jammers that had flown by that just kind of like landed on this planar path. And refuse revenants are undead that come about that either died in sewers or had died because garbage had suffocated them or fell on them and killed them. So they're basically undead that are very unhappy with the way that they died. <laughs> and they are surrounded by this mound of garbage all the time. There's an aura around them that causes sickness. And they can throw filth at people that, that roots them to the spot. And on top of all of that, they just keep reaccumulating their garbage, which is what causes them to regenerate. <laughs> but if you do radiant damage to them, they do not get to regenerate. They were horrible. <laughs> <laughs> in the best way possible. They were kind of fun, though. I, I enjoyed running those. Especially the first time I mentioned the, the Halo of Filth ability. <laughs> Halo of Filth? What? <laughs> there was something that made me start feeling like I was a little bit off this night when I was running, and that is I forgot that they did still have Heroes Feast running, and therefore they should not have been able to get poisoned by that aura of filth. So I felt a little bit bad about not remembering that myself. For the most part, I don't think it hurt us too badly. Yes, I didn't get off Kazina's sneak attack possibly as often as I could have, but at the same time, I got it off often enough. Mm -hmm. And I, I like to think that even if she hadn't have been affected by the poison, she still would have retched at the end of it because that was gross. <laughs> yes, it was. It was nice, though, because it did lead into some tactics where, for example, Ivy was lighting things up with Guiding Bolt. So that you could go in there and hit it without yeah. having disadvantage. So And so you got your sneak attack. So, I mean, it did call for a little bit of teamwork that I liked in there. The other thing I did like about that fight is there's always kind of that feeling that, okay, we're fighting undead. We should hit it with radiant damage. And the thing is, there's some undead where that doesn't do anything. So I kind of like the fact that this, you ran into an undead encounter where it literally does help yeah. you to, uh, to hit it with radiant damage. It's part of what I call... Edition rules screen burn, where <laughs> in past editions, certain damage did more damage to certain creatures. And a lot of that doesn't exist in fifth edition anymore. But I still have a lot of players who are like, oh, 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 we need to do this type of damage. Or like they think you can't use a piercing weapon on a skeleton because like in third edition, it it was like half damage. And the thing is, I, I still think, you know, hitting undead with radiant damage is probably best practices. But yeah, there's not as many undead stat blocks where that does anything special other than just damage to it as there were in other editions. Yeah. So I didn't want this session, even though they were going to be buying things, to just feel like a shopping episode. And by that, I mean everything just stops. People look through books and they're just spending money. And it's not really a role-playing thing. There's no story going on. So what I wanted to make sure I did was I worked up personality traits for their guide once they reached Plangadesh. I worked up personality traits for the Doar merchants, which are the little fey penguin creatures. They were great. The Mercane, which is the very professional, tall, celestial creature. The Emissary of Lang that nobody wanted to talk to because his face is a bug face. And then there was also a Dark Elf and a Dwarf that were competing merchants that kind of made fun of each other. And I also wanted the Dark Elf and the Dwarf to be more in the Norse theme of things. Like, this wasn't necessarily... A drow dark elf. This was a Spartelheim dark elf. So, you know, like they have competing companies that, you know, build armor and weapons that are trying to outperform each other. I also had a Thurser merchant that was just there to be a jerk because he only builds stuff for giants and uh, larger creatures. <laughs> this, the other thing that I wanted to do since they were buying from merchants that were this distinct was to use there's a table in the DMG that is who is this magic item created by or for? And it adds, like, just kind of minor quirks to things. Like, for example, the Dark Elf's things were all made out of black metal and they weighed half as much as they normally do. And the Dwarf's stuff all had, like, double their normal, you know, hit points because they were more durable. Not stuff that, that makes them super different from what the magic item would normally be, but adds a little bit of... Flavor. Yeah, basically. And all of the Doar's stuff was very um, flowery and whimsical and... <laughs> I had fun with the door. Guess who Kazina <laughs> bought all her stuff from? Look, telepathic penguin merchants. <laughs> yeah, Kazina bought a bag of holding and a, a set of magical leather armor from them, which I am having fun <laughs> getting described. The other thing that I kind of felt off 
on this session was there was a several sessions ago the party got a bunch of treasure there was supposed to be a point at which they came back to check on that treasure i kind of assumed that everybody had that treasure and i don't know that i handed it out and i had to rebuild that treasure and there was some losing track of how much treasure people had even though they all felt like they had treasure and i should have checked on that stuff beforehand because that kind of stalled us out and stopped the role-playing aspect of what was going on while i was trying to reconstruct what treasure they got where yeah we had a couple of people who hadn't really been marking down when we got treasure and as a result didn't think they had any money to spend and it's like no 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 you would have money you probably should all have the same amount that Kazina has. Yeah, I was going to say, because there, you know, I knew that I had handed out a few good lumps of uh, treasure there. Yeah. And I didn't think there was any reason it wasn't divided equally. So Because I think Kazina had at least like 150 platinum mm -hmm. and uh, like 1400 gold before you gave us the treasure that we should have gotten from the sewers. You guys are working for a dragon. You're not you're not broke. Yeah. We'll probably cover this a little bit when we talk about, you know, introducing new players to the game. But you should mm -hmm. have somebody in the player group who is the group's accountant and keeping track of this stuff because it helps. It really does. Yeah. And honestly, that may even be one of those things I am very focused on doing story elements and social contracts in Session Zero. And honestly, that's probably another thing you need to talk about in a Session Zero. I think in the olden days, you had to have your mapper. You had to have somebody keeping yeah. track of the map. <laughs> and I don't think that's as important anymore because no. we generally don't fixate on that as much as we used to. But at the same time, when you're giving the party stuff mm -hmm. at a fairly frequent rate, it's difficult for the GM to keep track of it. So you should have somebody on the player side keeping track of it and making sure everybody's getting their fair share. Yeah. I will say it's really nice in Shard because it <laughs> distributes the gold for you. Really nice. I did feel like we kind of like after I reconstructed the treasure, it felt like we did kind of stall out into a regular shopping episode <laughs> where everybody was just kind of like looking up magic items and saying, hey, was there, do they have one of these? And I'd look at it and say, yeah, they probably have one of those. And that's another place where I think I spent a lot of time building out the merchants and I'm glad that I did. What I would have done now, what I believe I should have done now, and keep in mind, you can be playing since 1985 and still completely mishandle a session, everybody. <laughs> um, what I should have done was at each rarity level, I should have worked up maybe like three different magic items. Things that were going to be widely useful for multiple people and have like three different common, three different uncommon, three different, you know, rare and depending on what they had in stock, at least it gives somebody, this is all going to be worthwhile, but it's not, we're going to look all over the place just to randomly find things. I don't think you flubbed the session per se. It was basically hindsight is twenty twenty, mm -hmm. And having set up a list of what was available would have streamlined the, you know, well, what what do I want? I don't, I don't know what's available, mm -hmm. you know, which, you know, ends up having people start looking for what type of magical items are in the range of what they might be able to afford. And one of the technical things that I tripped over as well is in Roll20, you can filter like monsters very easily or spells fairly easily. But for some reason, the last few times I've tried to filter magic items, it doesn't work. The filter is there and I click on it and it never resolves. What I was trying to do with that was I was trying to lean more towards using the specific Cobalt Press items like from Vault of Magic instead of leaning on, you know, the traditional things from the DMG. And because I couldn't get that filter to work in game, that kind of like left everybody to be like, well, do they have one of these? Do they have one of these? <laughs> um, the other thing, though, that where I wanted to wrap it back up into a story package was there was an Emperian that was in charge of the market. So he is bas basically a baby Titan that, that ran this market and he was from the sphere of trickery and he just likes to people watch. And he had basically has a an Azabon, which is like a, a raccoon folk fae creature that just every so often he'll have run out and steal something and watch the uh, people in the market chase the person down. And if they chase him down, he gives them an extra prize. He refunds their money. He doesn't try and steal anything from them. He would have given them back their money if the, the Azabon got away from them. It's just a thing he does to amuse himself. So the Azabon comes running up to Kazina and Kazina made a really good opposed strength roll. <laughs> hey, that, that backpack is really pretty. She didn't want to give it up. But I, 
What was nice about that is it did give Kazina a chance to roleplay a little bit with the Empyrean and just kind of talk about, like, why do you run this market? I don't know. I'm just kind of bored and I want to see people, you know, <laughs> I want to see how people react when they're shopping, you know, things like that. It was not a bad session, but I do feel like I let the energy flag a little bit too much. And there are some things that I could have done to shore up the middle part of the session. It bothers me more in part because the previous adventures in Valhalla didn't really have stakes because you weren't going to die there. So I kind of feel like we went from Valhalla where there weren't any stakes to Klangadesh where there weren't any stakes. <laughs> and I didn't quite want to have those kind of beats, you know, back to back in the different campaigns. I don't think that was necessarily avoidable. We realized very quickly during the Valhalla fight, we needed to get Mazrum a magic weapon. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, now he has a magic weapon that he actually gets to add his proficiency bonus to. And it did feel to me, at least, that in Valhalla, even though you knew you weren't going to stay permanently dead, people were invested in trying to win. We tried really hard to win at that last fight. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that is pretty much that uh, that game session wrapped up. I think we should... Swing around into magical tinkering. Now let's add a smidge of evocation, a bit of divination, and a sprinkle of necromancy. We had a playtest using the first two packets from Project Black Flag material from Kobold Press. By the way, since uh, I started doing these notes before the announcement, it is no longer Project Black Flag. It is now uh, Tales of the Valiant RPG. That is Kobold Press's official name for the uh, game. I mean, that's probably a better name for a traditional fantasy game than Black Flag, because Black Flag makes me think of pirates. Yeah, I know. That was something I was thinking, too. And while I do like pirates and I do like fantasy pirates, it's not especially something Midgard is known for. So <laughs> no, but OK, now I know something that I didn't know. Yes. So it is now uh, uh, Tales of the Valiant. This one would have gone into the last episode, but we had so much to talk about <laughs> with the D&D movie that yeah. it just didn't make it in. We would have probably been a three-hour episode if we'd included <laughs> this in the last episode, because Chris also played in this playtest. Oh, yeah. Probably not a whole lot of details. Just in general, the group was comprised of four humans, an elf, a dwarf. We're using the lineage, heritage, background, and talent information from Packet 1. We had two wizards and two fighters, each using the subclasses that were introduced in Packet 2. And then we had a bard and a cleric in the playtest just because we could not have a party of all fighters and wizards. That wasn't going to work. And basically to kind of make sure that it, it kind of felt right, the subclasses for the cleric and the bard both came from Kobold Press products. So that way it kind of felt like it's at least kind of in the same design vein. So the playtest was pretty straightforward. It was a dungeon crawl for 8th level characters. The PCs encountered some void-touched undead creatures and made enough noise when they ran into the, these undead that they attracted a wandering patrol of Darrow. And then after all of that, basically the framing device for this, because I can't do this with no story, although I did less story <laughs> than I did in my previous playtest, was they were going into this dungeon to shut down these magical altars that were sucking light from the prime material plane into the uh, plane of shadows. And so they wrapped up by shutting down one of these magical altars. We also couldn't play as long as we normally do because we had at least one person who had to bow out at, at a certain point and then it was getting late. So we didn't get to all of the encounters we could have. They got to one altar and there were two more altars in the dungeon. So <laughs> I think we got a good feel for what at least these two packets offer. Yeah, I think some of the things that we kind of came up with, and I'll let Ange talk about the cantrip adept when we get to that, which is the subclass of wizard she was playing. The weapon master fighter didn't feel bad, but it definitely feels like it could use more tricks. Yeah. There's only a handful of things that it did. Even at that, that seemed like there were more things that if you had edged weapons or piercing weapons, you could do neater stuff than if you had blunt weapons. Feels like there's a little bit more they can pad out with that. And they've they've even said they're going to be designing more tricks for that subclass, too. But you can kind of feel it. It felt like it's the Battlemaster, but not the Battlemaster, because we can't call it the Battlemaster. It's the Battlemaster, but there's no dice involved. You're just spending points to do things instead. That's what it was. I don't think the things were exciting enough for what the character is supposed to be. No, because I think with the Battlemaster, there is that kind of feeling of randomizing things when you add the die in yeah. there too because it's like i did a thing and i added 
four to this thing, you know, or, you know, that that kind of builds a little bit of excitement, but it definitely needs a few more tricks added to it. Spellblade did not feel a whole lot different than the Eldritch Knight, but also I believe the Spellblade <laughs> was a little hard to evaluate because, unfortunately, our player who was running the Spellblade had the most cursed virtual dice that I've seen in a long time. <laughs> I mean, he didn't do too bad on the actual attack rolls, but anytime he tried to use one of his spells, it was a bust. Yeah, the, the whole, I'm going to hit you and then follow up with a cantrip. I'm going to hit you and I will never follow up with a cantrip. Yeah. <laughs> I think the battle mage kind of shined a little bit in this. Yes. Especially being able to exclude allies to throw that lightning bolt to hit a whole bunch of uh, things in one in one of the uh, rounds there. The battle mage seemed like, oh, that has some interesting facets to the subclass. It's interesting because it feels like they took the war mage and the evoker from the core rules and kind of like shoved them together and took yeah. bits and pieces from both. And it makes sense because, I mean, the evoker is pretty much a war mage to begin with. If you're not planning on blowing things up, why are you a wizard focused on evocation? <laughs> exactly. Um, so how did you feel about the cantrip adept? It was interesting, but disappointing. I kind of was expecting a little more from it than it actually gives you. I don't think it gave you anything to make your cantrips more powerful. And the feature it does give you, it allows you to take one cantrip that is a normal action casting time and turn it into a bonus action casting time but your uses of those are fairly limited it was per proficiency bonus i think yeah per proficiency bonus which is like again that's that's like less than a handful of times that you can do that and that's not useful i mean the battle mage was far more effective with dropping the big damage spells and you know i'm like look <laughs> firebolt and firebolt again Yay. What's funny about that, too, is it did get bonus damage, but it got bonus damage equal to proficiency bonus. And that's one of those places where I definitely think you do want to go with the ability score, not the yeah. proficiency bonus. When you're talking about extra damage, that seems like something that should be dependent on your casting stat. Like, you are a better caster, therefore you are doing more damage. Like, I kind of get why sometimes they want to, you know, make uses per day maybe be more proficiency bonus, but that felt like that should have been ability bonus. I'm also starting to really think that all of these things that are proficiency bonus per long rest should be proficiency bonus per long rest, but you get back one use if you take a short rest. Yes, yes. I'm really starting to think that might be something they need. That's not just this. Yeah, that's spellcasters in general. Even Watsy, I think they should be doing that. Why are wizards the only ones that get the, um, what is it they get on a short rest? The arcane recovery? Yeah, arcane recovery, yeah. Why? Why Why can't a sorcerer get that? Why can't a cleric get that? It's almost like they try to move away from people getting stuff on short rests, but you should be able to get something on a short rest. I feel like they wanted to get away from short rests, but then realize you can't really get away from short rests. If you want to let your characters use their hit dice to heal between combats... Mm -hmm. But don't want to have it be this whole complicated short rest thing where other people get other things back. Then let it be you you take a, a quick rest at 10 minutes and everyone kind of rebolsters themselves and mm -hmm. heals up enough to go move on to the next thing. Until you do something that allows everybody to use their hit dice out of combat, then everyone is still going to want to take a short rest on occasion. Yep, definitely. I think luck worked better than it read. Mm -hmm. I'm still kind of wondering long term how it's going to work out because it still feels a little weird to me that like if you're somebody that gets two attacks per round and you hit with one of those, but you miss with the other, you're still getting luck where the poor person that gets one attack per round and misses, you know, the other person that, that also hit gets as much as you did when you didn't yeah. do anything that round. And I don't know. I don't know that you want to micromanage it too much because it did feel like it was flowing relatively decent. I don't know. I'll just have to I'll have to play with it a little bit more, but I do think it worked a little bit better than it read. We need to play more when they come out with more information because this definitely felt like we didn't have enough to get a really good feel for what they're going for in the long run. But luck was not awful. No, I liked it. And actually, I think it did what it what it was meant to do. Like everybody was was kind of joking about that. Hey, I missed, but I got a point of luck. Yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't all bad. I got luck. 
the funny thing was the bard, we weren't really playtesting anything, but it was really interesting playing that bard and playing with a subclass that came out of Tome of Heroes. That bard was so much <laughs> different than the bard that we had in the uh, the one D&D playtest because... That bard was doing lots of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Poor bard been done dirty. Yeah, that bard we used was the College of Tactics. So basically what would happen is it's almost like a Battlemaster bard. Like you could spend that die and there were different things you could do with that die beyond what a bard normally did. And it was tactical things like being able to move and being able to, you know, set up, you know, other people for things. And it had a lot more going on with its class features than the one D&D bar. That's all I'll say. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I will be very interested to see what they do with the bard for Tales from the Valiant. Mm -hmm. Fighters and wizards didn't feel radically different in their roles. You know, even with the subclasses, you know, we had some critiques on those one way or the other. But like the classes themselves, it didn't feel like, oh, my gosh, these fighters are completely different than what they used to be. And that was even with the fact that a lot of their abilities, instead of just having like a fighting style you'd have to spend a bonus action to basically activate a fighting style but it seemed like people kind of liked that idea where you are actually actively doing something instead of just passively getting a bonus yeah i definitely want to see more classes and subclasses only having a few it was painful trying to stretch the same talents <laughs> and backgrounds across that many characters so I really, really want to see some more stuff before I do another playtest with these. Yeah, we definitely need more material before we can get a, a true playtest in. So, moving on to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. D&D is definitely a fantasy game, but it pulls from a lot of different genres. The D&D movie is a heist movie, and the latest adventure product, He is from the Golden Vault, is also an anthology of heists. Prior to that, Dragonlance Shadow of the Dragon Queen was a war story. We both run games and settings designed for dark fantasy and pulp stories, so we thought we'd talk about genre in D&D. The 2014 Dungeon Master's Guide details the following flavors of fantasy. Heroic fantasy, sword and sorcery, epic fantasy, mythic fantasy, dark fantasy, intrigue, mystery, swashbuckling, war, and wuxia. How well do you think this covers the kind of genres you are actually likely to see in a D&D game? I think one of the big things they miss out on right off the bat is cosmic horror. And I say that because so many monsters in D&D are actually based on cosmic horror. That quarry was totally cosmic horror. Oh, yeah, definitely. I don't know that cosmic horror is the theme of any D&D campaign setting, you know, completely. But like almost every setting has touched on cosmic horror in some aspect in some region. Mm-hmm. I think you could argue that heists kind of fall under intrigue, but, you know, it might be more intrigue plus swashbuckling. It, it could be the same genre. It could be a different genre. I was also kind of surprised that the DMG doesn't mention, like, uh, horror or dark fantasy as genres. It's also probably worth noting that in Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, there's a lot of discussions on subgenres of horror, specifically, um, you know, treatments of them that are that are much more than a surface treatment that you get in the DMG. Yeah. I think D&D does a very specific type of fantasy genre very well and very easily, but I think most games tend to borrow from a variety of genres in actual execution. And I kind of wish the DMG had discussed that a little bit further than it did. And I could also make an argument that they didn't include romantic fantasy, which should be included in that list because that can come up. Yeah, and what's interesting about that is I've even seen other... D&D products refer to that as being part of what goes into Dragonlance. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Of the genres they mentioned in the DMG and the ones we added to our list, how would you define them? All right, let's go back and forth with these. Um, heroic fantasy, I would just define as people attempting to accomplish major goals against long odds that will likely affect people beyond themselves. Sword and sorcery, adventurers trying to gain gold and glory and running into weird supernatural stuff along the way. Epic fantasy, the heroes are part of events that aren't just going to affect a large number of people, but nations and political structures. Mythic fantasy, adventures are dealing with the fundamental forces of the universe, so everything is driven by a cosmic force, a singular entity, or a god, or the interplay between all of those together. Dark fantasy, that's where you have consequences for everything the protagonists do, and often they are left with no good option, just trying to find the option that's least terrible. 
Noir, you're never sure of who is on what side and everybody has their own agenda. You're likely to find out even the people you like have tangled allegiances. Pulp, the way everything gets resolved is way over the top and action heavy. Everything has an air of go big or go home. Cosmic horror. There are big, powerful things that don't work the way the rest of the universe works, and they may cause your destruction even without knowing or caring that you exist. And gothic horror, the flaws that everyday people have are heightened to become supernatural problems. Vampires are people that prey on others and use them. Werewolves are people that can't control their passions. Things like that. In the DMG, they talk about existing campaign settings in the D&D multiverse and assign some genres to those settings. For example, Forgotten Realms is heroic fantasy, Greyhawk is sword and sorcery, Kryn is epic fantasy, Dark Sun is sword and sorcery, Eberron, heroic fantasy, Mistara, heroic fantasy. Do you think those designations are on the money, or did they kind of miss some aspects of the genre for those? They're definitely very surface level uh, descriptions of some of those settings. And I also think it's funny that they mention some settings that they haven't touched on. Yeah, like, when are they going to come out with an actual Dark Sun product? Yeah. I think Forgotten Realms and Greyhawk and Mistara are all broad enough that one genre is a little too narrow to try and describe the whole setting. Um, I would agree that the realm skews more heroic fantasy than sword and sorcery, and Greyhawk probably skews more sword and sorcery over heroic fantasy. But I think, like, both of those, depending on where you're adventuring and, you know, what you're doing and what factions are involved, that those dials go all over the place. The description of Eberron is way too vague to sell that setting. <laughs> Eberron needs to be a mix of noir and pulp tacked on to heroic fantasy. Oh, yeah. Like, if you don't include those pulp and noir elements in Eberron, it's like, just go to Waterdeep. Yeah, as you said, we probably will never see Dark Sun because that's going to take a lot to deal with some of the aspects of Dark Sun. <laughs> but using sword and sorcery to describe it is kind of weird to me, because on one hand, yes, I can see like people trying to win fortune and glory in, in Dark Sun, but that's usually after they have survived long enough to you know escape oppression and survive living out in the desert and not dying. So it seems like survival is kind of like job one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think most D&D games and most of these D&D settings are heroic fantasy at their core. It's just what other genre do you have mixed in with that game? And to be fair, you can mix and match a lot with most of these settings. Um, you can totally have epic fantasy in your Forgotten Realms. Tyranny of the Dragon Queen certainly felt epic towards the end. And you can have a little bit of cosmic horror in your Eberron, like <laughs> we just said with the quarry and the Dalkir. They didn't include settings like Spelljammer, which admittedly in 2014, they probably didn't know they were going to be <laughs> releasing a, a set in 2021 about it. But at the same time, it was an established setting that they could have referenced. Mm -hmm. That one has a bit of a swashbuckling feel to it, I think. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I I don't think your core assumptions of Spelljammer, where you're getting on a spaceship, but not a technological spaceship, like literally sailing a galleon into space. There's no way you're not thinking of, you know, dealing with space pirates and swinging over to other ships and, you know, having sword fights with people and things like that. <laughs> they completely didn't even try to address that one. <laughs> <laughs> So what do you think D&D does to facilitate heroic fantasy that it could do better? You know, as you said before, it's the thing that D&D does best of all. I mean, it's designed mm -hmm. around people doing big things and having the stamina to do more big things later during the same day. If anything, you know, the, the little tweaks that we have talked about even in the playtest session is sometimes you feel like maybe once your heroes get a chance to take a breather, they should be able to get back some of the stuff that they get to do, even if they don't get all their tricks back again. They should feel a little bit of attrition, yeah. but maybe they should be able to keep going to do something kind of neat and over the top. I mean, I've already said this, but I think heroic fantasy is what D&D does at its core. But I think one of the problems it runs into is that when the players get familiar with the conceits of the game... They sometimes get lost in that minutia and forget to play into the genre and the narrative of the game. And I'm not sure how to get around this other than possibly offering more advice and tools to the GM on how to mitigate some of that metagaming. And I say this as someone who does not believe that metagaming is a bad thing. Yeah. 
Um, I think you need metagaming in your game for it to function, but that is a topic for a whole other episode. I just think it can inadvertently supersede the narrative of the game and offer some skills to the GM that they can develop in coping with that. I do think what's neat is when you have mechanics that reinforce a certain feel that is good for that genre. And honestly, just talking about the playtest again, just that the luck mechanic, I think, actually plays into heroic fantasy because you're being rewarded for attempting to do things, even if you don't succeed. So moving on to sword and sorcery, what does D&D do for that as a genre and what could it do better? So in D&D 5e, we don't get a lot of advice about excluding things from a campaign. I think uh, the Dragonlance Adventure is probably one of the first times I've seen where they actually said, hey, maybe you don't play these things because they don't maybe fit that well into the setting. And most of the time, they kind of assume that anything that they've published is going to be able to fit in anything that you're playing. And I think to reinforce that sword and sorcery feeling, you kind of maybe want to restrict some classes. I don't think that PCs should never have magic in a sword and sorcery genre, but they shouldn't be the ones that master it. It should be a tool, but a sword is a much better tool. (laughs) I think if I were to run something that truly had a sword and sorcery feel in a D&D game, any of the magic arcane classes, Mm -hmm. actually even any of the divine casting classes, would be limited to maybe third level. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can get to third level in that class, otherwise you're... You know, you can take one of the subclasses that lets you get some magic, or you can get multi-class to that. But having somebody play a wizard, a sorcerer, or a warlock in a sword and sorcery game kind of goes against the feel of the the PCs kind of being the ones that are a little out of their element dealing with the magic. I mean, you have to have the magic for a sword and sorcery game because it's that whole sorcery thing. But it shouldn't be something the the players are doing. And I I think this leads to a question of whether the players are going to still want to play the game if the GM is telling them they can't play certain classes or are limited in how far they can level in those classes. Um, This is one you definitely need to get buy-in from your players at the start of the campaign to get everyone to agree to get the right feel of that genre. Mm Mm-hmm. So, does D&D support epic fantasy as a genre, and what could it do better? So, from the standpoint of characters doing big, important things and being the focus of major events, I think the general paradigm of D&D works fine, but there are some things that you see in epic fantasy that don't have as much weight in the uh, assumed narrative of D&D, like... Fighting a legendary monster that only awakens once in a generation is great, and that can definitely feel like an epic fantasy thing. But having an important council where you're convincing, you know, different kings to work together so that, you know, you can form an alliance against this evil empire, that doesn't have as much mechanical oomph to it, especially when you just end up saying, hey, make me a persuasion roll. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's... That doesn't quite feel like, you know, the the council in Rivendell there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you can do those types of things in D&D, but it's something that GM has to handle carefully and with more than just a persuasion role. You know, I think that is one of those, again, a whole other topic we could get into about playing, you know, having an awkward human being playing a character that is supposed to be social and suave and charming and... Can I just roll my persuasion check, please? I rolled a 20. I gave the Aragorn speech. (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing, it's not a thing that I think every epic fantasy story has to have, but I do think war and mass combat does play into epic fantasy a lot. And I don't necessarily like mass combat per se in D&D, but I have seen things where characters can play people on a battlefield that affect the overall battle. And I've seen some of those rules work that I wish were more standardized in D&D. They touch on this a little bit in Shadow of the Dragon Queen, the Dragonlance adventure, but it's not so much done as here is a system for you to do it. It's more specialized to in this encounter, if you do this thing, it affects this. And it's not easy to extract and use in other adventures. It's just something they kind of wrote into that particular adventure. One of the things we're kind of skirting around in talking about genre is tone. And 
epic fantasy should have a serious-ish tone that I think sometimes can get lost if you don't set up your D&D game right. It's the meme that goes around, this is who the GM wants their party to be, and it's the picture <laughs> of the Fellowship from Lord of the Rings. This is the party the GM gets, and it's the picture of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we can all devolve into that humor and ridiculousness, and if you don't set the right tone for the game, or or have a GM who has the skills to kind of navigate things back into that more serious tone, it can be hard to actually have a truly epic fantasy genre in your, your D&D game. Oh yeah, definitely. So it feels like intrigue, mystery, and war are all things that are subcategories that could show up under other genres. How do you feel about expanding these themes into an entire campaign versus having them be different things in a campaign? I think mystery is one of those things that just comes up at various points in a campaign. I'm trying to picture, like, tr- you know, writing an entire campaign where everything is always the PC solving mysteries. And I think you could do it, but I can't envision it as well in D&D. But I can easily envision having adventures where you have mysteries come up on a regular basis. I can tell you that campaign is set in Waterdeep or Sharn. <laughs> one or the other. You are correct. If you're going to do that, those are going to be good settings for that. Intrigue kind of just feels like layering whenever you need to learn secrets, but you need to protect secrets while you're learning secrets. That kind of feels like intrigue. And that's another one of those things that feels like it comes up in some games, but not in other games. One of the things that I think is funny is when we first were kind of talking about our game that we run, our game in the Marodi Empire, and you all were going to be agents of this dragon. I was picturing it a little bit more as an intrigue based game where you're working for... (laughs) For Yurazazah, and maybe nobody knows this, and then in, like, the first session, Marin just, like, blurts out that you're working for Yurazazah. Marin is very good at what he does. What he does is not subtlety. (laughs) These are almost like additional descriptor tags that can get tacked onto a campaign. I think D&D still works best if you're sticking to heroic fantasy at the heart, but you can totally run a mystery-based campaign or an intrigue-based campaign, or a war-based campaign. I've never seen it done, but I've toyed with the idea of having a campaign set during the last war in Eberron. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of cool stuff that can be done there. I'm considering running Keys from the Golden Vault this summer, which is definitely a D&D game with a specific heist flavor built into all of the adventures. Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm also a fan of mixing and matching at the whim of the GM, Whatever the GM needs to make that an interesting game, pull it. Pull it into the game. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think as far, you know, as long as we're talking about genre, I have things that tend towards a certain genre, but I don't think I have ever, you know, completely aligned to one genre and wrote it that hard. I am usually like, we're mainly this genre, but let me grab this thing to throw this in here. <laughs> I will say if you if you specifically want to run a a a campaign that leans more towards a specific genre, you want to set that up at the beginning. Yes. Um, Like, if you want to run a mystery campaign, your players need to know that so they can build characters around investigation and insight and perception and persuasion and deception and these other things mm-hmm. that can let them get the clues they need. I remember in my original Eberron campaign that I played in ages and ages and ages ago, the, we were in, um, our character stopped and wrote for something and we got framed for a murder. And it was supposed to be this kind of murder mystery that our characters were supposed to solve. But the player whose character was most designed for this type of thing <laughs> stopped playing with us. And we were just kind of like, well, the person this was designed for isn't here anymore. <laughs> so how do we handle this? And in the end, the GM kind of had an NP, you know, like had us do a couple of things to clear our name. And the NPC authorities are like, OK, we're going to let you go on this mission for the king. Like he asked, yada, yada, yada. And the player and the character who was supposed to be our inquisitor, basically she got a job somewhere else doing something else. It was just like, <laughs> you have to be careful that you have the right mix of characters to do the genres you want to do. 
It is funny because now that you mentioned that, uh, the Streets of Avalon game that I was running was... I don't know that I was going to make the whole campaign mystery, but it was definitely going to start off with the PCs investigating a cult and all of these cult activities that were going on in their neighborhood. And John made a bard for that that was like uber investigator. And then John couldn't play. At which point we found out that everyone else in the party had a 10 or lower intelligence. (laughs) (laughs) And what was funny was we ended up adapting that to where the party actually then became more about either reacting to things or making friends and contacts that could help them get information. So they were still actively doing things. They weren't necessarily looking into things, but they were like, well, if this person knows something, we'll have to go talk to them. And that, you know, how can we get on their good side? So it still became a thing that they could actually do uh, uh, actively do, but it was kind of funny how that kind of like shifted right out from under the (laughs) campaign right off the bat. (laughs) So swashbuckling feels very much like an approach as much as a genre or campaign style what genres do you think it pairs well with honestly swashbuckling works really well with heroic fantasy swashbuckling has a lot in common with pulp Mm -hmm. you aren't going to do something simply you're going to look for the the most action-oriented way to resolve something and i think probably the biggest difference between pulp and swashbuckling is in pulp you might go over the top by hitting someone with a barrel in swashbuckling, that may not feel fancy enough <laughs> to go over the top with, but you may look for a way to cut a rope to drop a hundred barrels on someone. <laughs> yeah, I think swashbuckling sometimes is more of a character approach mm-hmm. that the GM allows to be facilitated in the game. Like it, 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 you can totally set up a campaign where the players are told make characters that are you know like into swashbuckling, into that mm-hmm. that over the top dramatic flair type of thing but i've seen many campaigns where you have one or two characters who are the swashbucklers of the group and Mm -hmm. everyone else is kind of there like there they go again let me throw this by you and see what you think when we were talking about this i was thinking what does swashbuckling and epic fantasy look like and to my mind especially for the movie version i was kind of thinking of legolas you know i think as far as what Legolas did on screen, mm-hmm. absolutely. But I don't know that Legolas was as charismatically overconfident <laughs> as I expect a swashbuckling type of character to be. He was almost too competent to be as over the top as he could have been for swashbuckling. <laughs> yes, Legolas was very much the, why is everyone looking at me like this? This is what I do. When I was trying to think of other examples of genre where you plug a swashbuckling in, into that genre... I was thinking about swashbuckling and horror, and the thing that I came up with was Ash in uh, in Army of Darkness. Yeah. <laughs> He's a little bit of a blunt tool as far as swashbuckling goes. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that too. There is also, though, that very big over-the-top, I'm going to do things. And also, it's not a rapier, but I mean, a chain, or, a, you know, having the chainsaw <laughs> attachment or having, you know, the... <laughs> the mechanical hand. Um, and I also think you can do swashbuckling with dark fantasy, but how I've usually seen that happen is you have that person that's almost oblivious to how terrible things are around them. <laughs> and either they get completely shattered by, you know, their story arc, like when they finally realize how terrible things are, or they're just the person where it just doesn't matter. They are completely unfazed by everything going on around them. <laughs> With swashbuckling it tends to be a little lighter in tone. Mm -hmm. So you have to be careful with pairing it with a campaign that is meant to be serious and dark. Mm -hmm. Not saying it can't be done. It just might mean a bad arc for the player who is the swashbuckler. But if somebody comes to you and they want to play a swashbuckler, you might want to make sure that the tone of your campaign is going to be able to support that type of play. And I would not recommend these to anybody that isn't in for kind of a a rough and gritty ride. But I think Joe Abercrombie's fantasy books do a lot of that kind of, you know, having characters that are more humorous in a dark fantasy setting where everything is terrible. But some of them are just just hilarious, even in that, (laughs) even with the horrible things going on around them. And he does manage to do a very good job of balancing that. That humor that you almost need for how oppressive the setting is, but then also the setting not lightening up any. Yeah. Now, because it's a part of the discussion in the DMG, we might as well tackle it. It feels like you could do 
wuxia in D&D, but the way it's discussed in that book, it feels more like an excuse to give Asian names to different weapons in the equipment list, rather than having anything meaningful to say about that genre. So, what are your thoughts on this, Jared? So, there's a lot more nuance to stories common to other cultures that take a lot more of a thoughtful discussion than a couple paragraphs in the DMG. Honestly, I think D&D has come a long way even since 2014. Because even in the DMG, I think they realized you don't want to do what we have done in the past. Yeah. But I still think they were kind of exoticizing. Because this is a katana instead of a longsword, you're supposed to go, ooh. Instead of actually looking at what the story is supposed to be, you know, for this setting. We have come a long (laughs) way from Oriental Adventures. But we still have a way to go. Oh, yeah. I do wish they'd put a little more thought and nuance into what they discuss regarding Wuxia, because I think it definitely is a genre worth blending with D&D, but it needs to be handled a little more thoroughly and a little more respectfully. Yeah, I mean, and honestly, Wuxia stories have a lot, depending on the actual story, can have a lot to do with high fantasy or sword and sorcery or swashbuckling. There are various stories that touch on all of those kind of genres as well. Mm-hmm. It really is going to take somebody that is willing to do the time and put in the effort and get people with the appropriate backgrounds to contribute to do justice to that type of thing. Instead of just making it a one-off, let's throw a few paragraphs in in here at the end of this section on genre, just so people know that we're aware this, this genre exists. You know, I think, I think in the end here, kind of wrapping up the discussion on genre, in some ways you could say that... D&D handles genre the way the MCU handles genre. (laughs) Yeah. The MCU is not just superhero stories. Mm -hmm. You know, it is a lot of different genres with these superhero concepts folded into them. Yeah. And I think D&D can be very similar. It is fantasy, generally heroic fantasy, but you can add a lot of different flavor by mixing in some of these different, very specific genres. Yeah, I I agree. And I also think another thing that kind of came up the more we were talking about this is a lot of genre, if you want genre to come through in your game, you you really need to have player Mm buy-in, which means you kind of need to have players that understand what you mean by by that Yes, and what they understand that genre to be as well and find that common ground there. Does this mean we need to do an episode on Session Zero? Yeah, probably. I, I think I actually think we're legally required to because we're an RPG podcast. Probably at some point. <laughs> no time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. So every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. Okay, so I know I share a lot of YouTube stuff. <laughs> And this is also YouTube-related, but only kind of peripherally. D&D Shorts recently posted a short on Brennan Lee Mulligan's Rolling with Emphasis mechanic. And I thought this was fantastic. This is basically a way to add some chaos to your role. (laughs) Basically, it's certain times when the player wants to do something that could be interesting as either a wild success or a spectacular failure... The GM calls for an emphasis roll, where you roll 2d20, and you go with the result that is furthest from a 10. (laughs) So if you have a 12 and a 2, you go with 2, and that thing is a spectacular failure. (laughs) You know, it's just, this reminds me a lot of the mechanic recklessness from Uncharted Worlds, where you roll a d6, and a 1d3 is a dramatic failure, and a 4d6 is a stunning (laughs) success. That is how... Nothing in between. (laughs) I mean, it's it's absolutely hilarious. It sometimes can be one of those things that really puts a GM through their paces, because I had a character get ejected out into space after they had crawled around in a fuel tank and then decided to deal with space spiders by lighting them on fire. <laughs> and he rolled recklessness and he rolled a one. Yep, that was the end of that character. (laughs) This isn't going to be for every game, but I think it could be a fun way for the right group and the right game. I will include a link to D&D Short's short 
so you can see what it is. And I'm sure that these rules will end up somewhere else on the internet at some point. Yeah, I'm hoping this is one of those things that ends up on the um, the Patreon that they have for the, the game that they're running. I heard him use this during one of their game sessions, and it was really funny hearing the players react like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very cool concept. So I'm going to recommend something from the ancient time lost era of 2017. In this case, it's uh, Cinema and Sorcery, The Complete Guide to Fantasy Film by Arnold T. Bloomberg and Scott Allen Woodward, or Woodard, and it's published by Green Ronin. I'm constantly surprised by fantasy movies that I have missed and not seen over the years, and I love looking at the context in which some of these films were made. And honestly, I kind of hope we get a revised edition of this book, since there's actually been a lot of fantasy that came out in the last six years since this was originally written. But um, we're going to have a link in the show notes so that you can go there and pick this up from the Green Ronin store. And hopefully the success of Honor Among Thieves encourages other fantasy movies too, because I like me some fantasy. Definitely. We are happily part of the Misdirected Mark production network, so we wanted to give a shout out to another MMP show if you're enjoying our show, you damn well better be also listening to... The Gnomecast! Several gnomes from Gnomes Do get together and talk about gaming topics and themselves in an effort to entertain you and avoid being thrown in the stew. I wonder what it's like to be on that show. I have no idea! <laughs> I, I wonder if two people that were on that show just like kept talking after they recorded the show and then came up with an idea to do another podcast because they do that show. Yeah, yeah, that <laughs> might be the case. We have used up all of our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you. We hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure.